This is Chip and Durham, flying solo this time on the audio guide to Babylon 5. This is a special extra edition interviewing a creator from the run of the series. There will be spoilers ahead. So with me today on our first ever extra edition of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 is Adam Mojo Leibowitz. Mojo, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, it's absolutely my pleasure. Do we have more than two minutes? We have two minutes and (laughs) then some because this is not my Doctor Who podcast. I know, I know, I know. But I mean, I do love, you know, all all things British. In fact, you know, I mean, Ron Thornton, who who was the original, I mean, the visual effects designer in Babylon 5, he got his early start on Doctor Who. Well, let's talk about that. Um, Mojo, you were working for a company called Foundation Imaging back in the day. Right. And what was what what was Foundation Imaging, and what did you all do for those first uh, three years plus the pilot of uh, Babylon 5? Foundation Imaging, for people who don't understand this, was literally the very first company in the world that did computer graphics imaging, CGI. CGI stands for Computer Graphics Imaging. Babylon 5 was the very first show in the history of the world that used computer graphics to do its visual effects. It wasn't ILM. It wasn't some other company. It was Babylon 5 that did um, computer imaging to do models and motion control and blue screen work that would normally be, be, uh, be done with models. And it was because, I mean, the show was already was always designed to be a low-budget series, and they couldn't afford to do fancy... I mean, when, when the pilot was written, Joe Straczynski just assumed the show would be blue screen and motion control, and he literally wrote a pilot episode that had like maybe eight or a dozen shots in it. And when when you met uh, Ron Thornton back on, I think it was the show Captain Power, Ron was just getting into CGI, and he, he told Joe, you know, if you're going to do your Babylon 5 pilot, I think we can do more shots than you think we can. And I think Babylon 5 was like the first science fiction TV movie ever written where the number of shots increased from version of version to the script. <laughs> because he had confidence that uh, you guys could uh, take care of it. When did you join Foundation? Right from the beginning. Uh, I was literally the first employee. Awesome. And by how much did Foundation predate Babylon 5? Um, Foundation was pretty much in concert with the pilot of Babylon 5. I mean, I was working at New Tech, uh, which is the company that created the video toaster and Lightwave 3D, which is the software that was used to make Babylon 5. I was there pretty much from the beginning. I mean, I was working at New Tech while Ron was talking to New Tech about plans to uh, use the toaster and Lightwave to make Babylon 5. And I met Ron while I was at New Tech. So the whole foundation imaging thing happened uh, at the same time, around 1992. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I when I when I first moved to California, when from New York, I'm originally from New York. When Ron hired me on Babylon Five, there was no studio yet. I mean, Foundation Imaging was literally run out of his garage and his apartment with with a cable that was strung next door to his partner's apartment. Wow! So that that was the studio. It was like two Amiga Four Thousands. Uh, I mean, sorry, two Amiga Two Thousands 
strung by like a network cable between two apartments through a garage. <laughs> that was the original foundation of Michigan Burbank. Wow. So by the time that uh, you were doing Honest to God post production on the Gathering, what kind of what kind of gear did you have, and how how primitive was that by today's standards? All right, I remember exactly what we had when we did the pilot of Babylon Five. We had eight Amiga 2000s. That was our render stack, which is like less than a single desktop computer that you have today. Good God. And we didn't, we didn't even have Ethernet. We didn't have a network. We, we had what we, what we like to call affectionately sneaker net. We would literally have to run a floppy disk between 10 different computers and load the same scene onto 10 different machines and tell it, okay, this computer runs frame 1 to 10. This computer runs frame 11 to 20, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> That's how we did the pilot of Babylon. And we had like an 8-gig server. And we thought, 8 gigs, oh my God, this will never run out. <gasps> wow. Um, so and, how- and, Okay, let, let, let me correct you. 8 gigs, not 8 terabytes. Right, eight right, gigs. right. Right, that's 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 less that's less storage than's on my phone right now. So, how long? How long did it? How <laughs> long? True. I mean, like most people's phone or most people listening to this podcast right now have more render power in their hand at their ears than we had for the entire pilot of Babylon Five. That's incredible. So, how long? How long did it take you guys to uh, complete uh, the special effects work or the? Um, what what what's the proper term? Because special effects is a is, is a wide ranging term. Uh, visual effects is that no, the we, yeah we like to say visual effects. Right. How long did it take you guys to complete visual effects for the pilot? Well, the pilot was a long process. I mean, we began work on the on the pilot back in 1992, and I was working on it from 1992 through. Uh, I would say October of 1995, but, but, but not, not because the work itself took so long, but I remember after Joe Stravinsky sent us a VHS of a rough cut, the pilot, we looked at it and thought, you know, there are some spots in here where they could use some more shots or where the shots could be better defined. And we just kept working, even though we weren't being paid. We just kept working on it just to try and make it a little bit better. So we kept sending off shots to him just because, you know, we just wanted to make Babylon 5 better. So when you were making when you were making uh, The Gathering, did you ever have moments where you felt like you'd bit off more than you could chew? Or did you feel really confident that the age of CGI really was beginning here? Well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, we all felt we were working on a labor of love. At no point did we feel like we're doing more than we can handle. I mean, all of us sort of grew up, I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine Cinemagic. No, I'm not, actually. Um, do you know Starlog? Yes, yes. Yeah, Cinemagic was a sister publication of Starlog. And Cinemagic was a magazine for young filmmakers. And Pretty much anyone in like the 70s and 80s who grew up wanting to make movies read Set of Magic. It was all about making Super 8 movies and, and uh, early VHS. And for some reason, we all had a connection with Starlog and Set of Magic. 
And we all, we all had this can do attitude. We all, we all felt like, you know, if we have a love for the material, there's a way we can do it. We can handle it. You know, I mean, the software isn't going to be the stumbling block. It's our, I mean, I know it sounds hokey, but in a sense it really is and was, will always be our imaginations. And so it's like, well, if the software has a button that lets you even remotely do what we have in our mind, we'll figure out a way to do it. I mean, that was always part part of the challenge in Babylon 5 was not knowing how we're going to do something. But at the same time, we also did sort of know we were writing a book on an industry and no one knew how to do it. So we could just do what we wanted to. (laughs) Looking back at the pilot, can you point to one achievement in visual effects that you're that you and uh, your colleagues over at Foundation were the proudest of. The one thing that uh, said, you know, we thought that we could do this, and by God, we did do this. On the pilot, God, I'm trying to remember back to then. I mean, because was... I do remember, uh, I do remember uh, JMS writing something or other on uh, that's reposted on the Lurkers Guide about the the number of Vorlon shots that were in the that that were in a the sequence towards the end of the pilot movie being a a higher number of motion control elements than something in Return of the Jedi or something like that. I'm Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That there there are some shots at the end. And please, you know, um, don't quote JMS on saying motion control. <laughs> all right. There was definitely no motion control in Battle Five. It was all CGI. Right. But yeah, at the end of the show, there are shots of I think the jump gate opening, and you know dozens and dozens of Vorlon ships, Vorlon ships coming out of the jump gate, which is something that I don't think anyone anticipated would be able to do. Oh, and there, there there was there was one shot, I think it's at the towards the end of the pilot when the Vorlon ships are surrounding the station, and you see there are little um, I don't know what to call it, it, it in between like the talons of the ship. You see the sort of arcing energy beam? Yes. Which is very fire from. I just made that up because I, I with Alan Hastings, Alan Hastings is the guy that originally wrote uh, the software, Lightwave. And we were just sitting around one day coming up with new interesting ways to do effects on Lightwave. And I sort of invented just on the spur of the moment this like circular arc wielding energy type thingy. And you know, it was just this cool effect. But when I looked at the Vorlon ships and saw how they had these four talons, I thought, hey, this little disk of energy will fit between them. And it sort of looks like they're getting ready to do something. So it helped up the suspense. Because instead of just seeing them fire a beam, it just looks like the ships are sitting there ready to fire something. Nice. It also just occurred to me as, as we're talking that uh, the organic look of the Vorlon ships the the fact that you had uh, you you had the sort of yellow green sort of shifting elements on the skin of those vessels was something that could yeah. never have been done with practical models. Well, okay, there's some stories about the Vorlon ship. Um, I don't know if you know the Barb of Gold of Garlic story. No, I don't. The, if you look at a Vorlon ship and think of a bulb of garlic, you're going to say, "Yep, that's it." <laughs> Because the Vorlon ship is essentially um, inspired by a bulb of garlic. That's what it is. The four cloves around the corners, that's a bulb of garlic. Nice. And so that's where the inspiration for the, for the Vorlon ship came from. And also, when the petals opened up, 
you saw this moving texture on the inside, this sort of animated thing. That's something specifically that never would have been possible with motion control. I mean, that's something that Ron prided himself on was that, you know, it was something that was simple to do in Lightwave, but it's something that you had never seen before, like a moving texture on a, on a model and on a spaceship. It just wasn't possible. And so that, that's something that, you know, was on the Vorlon ship that was something very early with CGI that had not been possible with motion control. Also, speaking of inspiration, I mean, I'm sure we all love the, the shadow ships, right? Oh, yeah. I was getting ready to go there, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, the texture, Ron built the shadow ship based, I think everyone knows, on a spider, because we always felt spider gave, spiders gave people nightmares, and it's one of, like a black widow or something is one of the scariest things people can think of. Right. So the ship was designed to look a bit like a spider. And Ron handed the model off to me to create the texture on it. And we, we both had, um, at the time, Foundation Imaging had sort of the office dog. Ron had a dog named Digby, named after Dan Dare's uh, assistant, Digby. And, um, you know, we both love dogs. And uh, one day, I, I'm looking really closely at Digby's nose, the black dog of a nose. And the texture <laughs> of a dog's nose is the shadow ship texture. <laughs> Cute little fluffy dog nose, big scary spider crab ship. I like it. I like exactly. the juxtaposition. Yeah, oh, and and one other thing I want to point out for the pilot of B five. I mean, the pilot. It was in the first season. The first time we see shadow space, it's this sort of red and orange, sort of scary looking area of space. It was the first time we had designed a new section of space that had a new nebula because Babylon 5's pilot was known for having that background nebula, the blue, the blue nebula. Mm-hmm. And that was also the first time ever in visual effects that we had seen a background in space that wasn't just black. Ron Thornton specifically designed this bright blue nebula so that when we did the typical high contrast lighting in space where you would see really black plaques, Ron was fond of saying, well, if you have a black lit spaceship against a black background, what are you going to see? You right. Know, you, you won't see anything. So by having the blue nebula, we were able to um, silhouette things that were even lit darkly. And then I think it was called, was it called the coming of shadows. I don't remember, but it, it was, it was the first episode where we first see shadow space, which is, you know, um, I think the planet Zahadum, and you see this orange and red, you know, sort of fiery background nebula. Uh, Mojo, I mean, uh, Ron said, Mojo, we need a new nebula for this episode. Come up with something in Photoshop. I don't remember thinking, this is like back in 93 or 94, like, you want me to draw a nebula in Photoshop? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean how the hell am I going to do that? It's like, I had no experience with Photoshop. I mean, zero at the time. I mean, it was still uh, in its infancy. And I thought, I remember sitting in front of the computer thinking, how the hell am I going to draw a nebula from scratch? I just don't see how it's going to happen. But I remember at the time, I was telling a friend about this the other day, um, the, the ironic thing was that when we were working on the pilot, we were in touch with some people at JPL. And uh, JPL loved the work we were doing. And they would send us images of real space that would hang on the wall. And we would send them images of our computer graphics that they would hang on the wall. They had sent us some of the very first images from the Hubble, some of the uh, nebulas that the Hubble was capturing. 
And I remember when I was trying to come up with a new nebula for Zaha Doom Space, I thought, okay, I can't draw a nebula. There's no way. But wait a minute, JPL sent us some of these nebula, some of these images of real nebulas. So I went through them and I saw this one that was sort of orangey and red. And I thought, wait, this looks like, you know, a bad neighborhood in space. So I just scanned the slide and manipulated that. And I honestly believe, I mean, now it's commonplace. You always see like Hubble backgrounds in the background of space shots. But I really believe I was the first person that ever did that. And you know, partially because it was creative, but partially because it was easy. <laughs> Now, uh, there was about a year in between uh, the pilot and the first season uh, where... We we had to wait a long time. I mean, when we started working on the pilot, Warner Brothers said, as long as you come in on budget and on time, you'll get a series. And the pilot was done under budget and, you know, on time. And they said, all right, we still want to wait six months to see how the ratings are. And then I think, if I remember correctly, the ratings on the pilot were the highest ratings ever for a TV movie or a sci-fi TV movie ever. And so the ratings were through the roof, and Warner Brothers said, well, we still want to wait a little while. <laughs> Lord. So, so by, we, the, by the time that you all were ready to go, uh, and you, had the, you had the go signal, were you able to beef up your resources? Were you able to get maybe one or two extra Amiga 2000s? Uh, how, how, yeah, I how, think... If I, yeah, I think I think by the time we were working on the first season, we had finally moved over to PCs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if I remember correctly, the pilot was all Amiga, and the first season began to transition to actual PCs. And with the uh, going to series, uh, you also cre- had the uh, what I think is the defining, even more so maybe than the station itself. Certainly my favorite uh, piece of uh, Babylon 5 visual effects kit would be the iconic Star Fury. Um, how did you all come oh, up yeah. with that one? Well, the Star Fury was a design collaboration between um, Ron and Steve Berg. I mean, Steve Berg is uh, a very famous concept designer. I mean, Steve Berg designed all the stuff from the first Terminator movie. I mean, all the iconic ships that you saw in all the Terminator films were pretty much designed by Steve. Steve designed the Abyss. I mean, uh, Steve has a long history of, of true of um, motion picture visual effects design and, uh, and, and, and model design. And he worked with Ron to do a lot of the designs for early Babylon 5, especially the Star Fury. And if I remember correctly, wow, I'm trying to go back. I think the Star Fury had, I mean, I don't know why I remember this, but it literally had like, 9,000 polygons or something, which, you know, I mean, today that would be considered like less than a video game model. But at the time, wow. Oh, the other thing too about the Star Fury that was unique is the nose art thing that we put on the top of the ships. What made that unique? Well, because in most visual effects, like, like for example, something like Star Wars, even Battlestar Galactica, every ship would look identical because this way they could use stock footage, you know, of the same shot. They use the same model for all the shots. But in Babylon 5, we gave the Star Furies, a lot of the Star Furies, their own characteristics. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Like they had different color schemes, or they had uh, different things on top of the ships, different designs. And that's something that really was only possible with CGI, because we could clone a model easily in the computer, you know, and put a new paint scheme on the top, you know, relatively quickly. 
and we get a fleet of ships that all look a little different. I mean, I remember like Omega Squadron specifically had, you know, that Omega pattern on the top. And I think, you know, a couple of Star Furies had like, like, like sort of pinup girl nose art on the top of them. Right, that and, that, uh, that sea witch one that kept showing up all the over the witch, place. Yeah, the yeah. sea witch that uh, that um, Mark Kaczynski made. Uh, I think he made he made that one. The uh, oh yeah, and the pilot. I mean, you got to remember, there were like literally three people that did visual effects for the pilot. There were very few of us. It was Ron and myself, and um, a guy named Mark Swain who was also involved in early visual effects. But the three of us pretty much did everything on the pilot. I mean, Ron's partner, Paul Bryant, handled pretty much all the um, IT stuff. Mm-hmm. And w- when I was handled the pilot, you know, I was going to be purely an assistant because I was just learning Lightwave. You know, I wasn't that great at it. But at the time, in 1992, we started up in June of 92 with the pilot in Santa Clarita. And nobody knew how to do CGI. So we were all making it up as it went. And um, really, the three of us sat in that studio at the first foundation meeting. We just did everything, just making it up as we went, you know, learning, learning the process ourselves. And there were, again, there were three of us that did the entire pilot for all the visual effects. By the time you went to series and you were doing uh, 22 episodes apiece for three years, right. how many people yeah. were working on the show at that point in visual effects? Um, yeah, once we got to the first season, we hired a few more people, but I think at no time there were ever more than like half a dozen people working on it. That's amazing. And also, something to keep in mind, for the entire run of Babylon 5, there was no such thing as compositing. Everything was done in camera, in light wave, in one shot. We rendered the entire thing, every ship, every, every laser beam, every explosion, it all rendered in one pass out of the computer. There was no after effects. There was no, you know, putting elements together. It all rendered in one pass, exactly as you saw it on screen. There was no, you know, changing anything later. It all happened in one shot. Everything. That sounds exhausting. Um, it had to have been a labor of love for you guys to have uh, to, to well, committed I mean, so also, much to. I mean, consider that, you know, you may say it was exhausting, but we didn't know any other way. I mean, it was just the way we did things. You know, we ran everything in the computer in one shot. I mean, there were tricks. I mean, from the early days of, of cinema, I mean, one of the things that you had to do was fake things, you know, make things look real even when they weren't. And one trick that we used a lot on Babylon 5 um, throughout the pilot in the first two seasons, we would call background cards, where if we had a shot that required more polygons or more models than we than the computer could render. Let's say, for example, we had to render, a perfect example is we had to show the entire Babylon 5 station, which at the time had like 100,000 polygons, which was insane. I mean, right now that would be nothing, but 100,000 polygons for one model back then would just break the computer. So if we had to show the station and let's say some Star Fury flying in front of it, the computer couldn't render all that. So we would render the station in one pass and then take the animation frames of the station, literally just stick them on a polygon, throw them in the background of the scene, and then render Star Fury over the top of that. So at that point, the 100,000 polygon Babylon 5 station was literally taking one polygon. Wow. And it was, you know, it was, it, it, we would call it background cards. And that was something we would do all the time if we had to put more ships in one shot and the computer could render. We just first kind of background. We did that a lot in um, in the third season episode, which I still I still think is one of my greatest achievements. Severed dreams. Mm-hmm. 
you know, several dreams on the station um, decide they're going to secede from the union. That was by far the biggest CGI episode that we were going to do. I mean, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of yourself. I know you're still doing well. What what season are you up to now? You're still doing the first we, season. We, we've just started. We've just started the second season. About we'll we'll spoiler tag this uh, this this conversation so we can we. All right, all right, all right. Well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything. I'll just talk about the technical aspect of it. But I mean, that episode, Seven Dreams. I mean, we knew from the start, you know, this is going to be a huge episode. Um, Joe was really proud of it. You know, it was a great script and a great story. Well, when we did that episode, we knew, okay, this is going to be a big episode. This is going to be like our, our piece de resistance, you know, and we knew from the start, we want to basically make Return of the Jedi for television. We want this to be huge because it's a great script. And, you know, of course it has like, as written, the biggest space battle, you know, that's not just CGI that was ever on television, ever. I mean, you know, it, it beat anything that had been on Galactica at that point. And when we started working on that episode, I specifically asked Ron, I said, look, this is going to be the biggest thing we've done. You know, will you let me take the reins of this? Because at that point, you know, look, I, I guess I was a pilot of B5. I started as an assistant. And through the first season, I worked my way up to actually being a visual effects artist. You know, I was uh, one of the crew. And, you know, I, I like to handle more and more just as a fan of the material. You know, I would read a script and sometimes I would get a vision for just how this should look and what we can do to make this different. Because we were always looking to make things a little bit different, you know. And how can we make something that doesn't look like everything that's come before it? And Severed Dreams, we knew, would just be big. You know, this was going to be like every ship in the world on screen at the same time. You know, we had the, the ships colliding with each other. You know, I mean, it, it was huge. And so I asked Ron, look, can I, can I take this episode by the reins? Can I direct it? And he was really kind and said, sure, Mojo. You know, he watched over my shoulder and we sort of storyboard. I mean, I still have somewhere in my files. I, I drew storyboards for every shot, like on the back of the script pages for that episode. And so we revamped so many things on that show. I remember like the explosions originally, you know, now when someone does an explosion in CGI, they just take frames of an actual pyro explosion you know, and put them into the scene. Well, that didn't exist, you know, when we did the pilot. I mean, in fact, I remember at the end of the pilot, the station has this explosion and goes off access. It wasn't right. originally written that way. Uh, Joe called Ron towards the end of the production pilot and said, hey, I have this idea for putting a scene in this group of the explosion. Can you do an explosion in CGI? And Ron's like, absolutely. I remember Ron, Ron hung up the phone and looked at me and said, how do we do an explosion in CGI? <laughs> We were doing these you know, weird, elaborate ballets and CG of a texture map and particles and a lens flare to try and create the explosion. Um, because we, we honestly thought, we knew about the potential of using like a real pyro element uh, in the background on one of those cards I was telling you about, but we thought it would look like a flat, fake thing. But for Severed Dreams, we really wanted to up the game and we wanted to make everything just look like the next generation of CGI. So we did a test, right? Let's finally take one of these real explosion elements and stick it in the scene and see what it looks like. And we both looked at each other and went, oh my God, that's so much better. We could have been doing this all along. Wow. And so that was the first time anyone had used a real pyro element, you know, in, in like a TV show. So, you know, when the ships exploded in Severed Dreams, everything looked so much more realistic. We had so many more ships on screen. And sometimes, I mean, the, the, the history of that show is a little odd because sometimes people will look back at the production schedule and say, oh, you guys took way too long 
making that episode, you know, it came down right to the wire. Like literally we finished that show like a week before it aired, but it was always designed to be that way because we knew that episode was going to be huge. So I think we actually, we completed the like five episodes that came after that first. And then we went back to do seven dreams. So we would have the extra time. So uh, I remember, um, because I was a B5 fan uh, almost almost from the beginning, I remember the nerd fights that happened on on what was, what existed of the internet back then. Uh, oh, Usenet. As, as for, yeah, yeah, Usenet. I, I was a, I was a records SFTV Babylon 5 oh, moderated dear. guy all the way back then. Um, but oh, I, my God. Yeah, I know. Boy, you go way back. Holy yeah. frack. Yep. So I remember the I remember the nerd fights that were happening between Star Trek fans and uh, Babylon Five fans at the time uh, over the models versus uh, CGI uh, stuff, which is kind of ironic right. considering the business changes that happened um, a, a, um, with Foundation Imaging. But we'll get to that. Um, but okay. when you were making it at the time, you had no qualms with the fact that you know the CGI is the way of the future and when I'm watching Babylon 5 compared to Star Trek of the time, I'm thinking, yeah, the yeah, some of some of the model work in Star Trek looks maybe a little more polished, but yeah. Babylon 5 Babylon 5 was totally more imaginative. Was that what you guys were going for by um full speed ahead on the CGI front? Well, I mean, I can't speak for Ron Thornton. Ron definitely had a vision for what he wanted to do. But I think both Ron and I had the same vision, which was very cinematic visual effects. I mean, everything Ron and I designed was for like a two, three, five, you know, aspect ratio. I mean, uh, we just wanted everything to look like star Wars. I mean, that's basically what we were designing the Star Wars in our minds. And that's what we wanted everything to look like was, I mean, was Star Wars. What, what, what more can I say than that? Yeah, yeah. So business happened, and uh, at the end of the at the end of the third season, uh, Foundation Imaging and um, the B five production team parted ways, and you guys moved on right. to moved on to uh, Star Trek. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> I want, I want people to understand we did not leave Babylon five to work on Star Trek Voyager. Absolutely not. If anything, at the time that Babylon five had, for lack of a better word, fired foundation imaging, Star Trek Voyager was looking for a visual effects company that could handle more of its CGI. And, you know, thankfully foundation imaging was available at the time. So we were able to start doing some work for uh, Star Trek Voyager in its last season. I think it was basics part two, which had this worm creature, a very Harryhausen type sequence was the first thing that foundation did for them. And in fact, when Star Trek Voyager started, it was always a combination of motion control and CGI. And towards the tail end of their first season, which I think was only 12 or 13 episodes, they were becoming disillusioned with CGI. Uh, the company they were using wasn't handling what they wanted it to handle. 
And they just felt like, and I can understand, you know, the early days of CGI, you know, it didn't have the polish of models and motion control. So they were, they were thinking about just going back to pure motion control. And for their very last, you know, for that last episode basics, they had this warm creature in a cave and there's just, there was no way they could really do that other than stop motion, which at the time was a little cheesy. So I think it was Dan Curry, their, um, visual effects producer said, you know, let's give CGI one more try. There's this company foundation imaging, you know, that won an Emmy for battle on five. Let's, let's, you know, let's see if they can do something for us. And that's literally how it started. They came to us with one episode to sort of finally, you know, test the waters of CGI before they were going to go back to motion control. And we did the worm creature, you know, for basics part two, and they were very happy with it. I mean, they were happy with it, and we had a great relationship with them. So literally from that point forward, we started doing, you know, a lot of the CGI on Voyager. And um, I think at that point, they, Voyager just decided, all right, forget motion control, we're moving over to CGI, because it was just a lot more cost-effective. And again, you could do a lot more than you imagine. I mean, one of the things that we loved doing on Voyager was pushing the envelope. We would get scripts that seemed clearly written, to beat around the bush of high-cost visual effects. And we said, guys, you have to stop thinking about motion control. We can do so much more with CGI. And we would often pitch to the Voyager producers, let's make this more than you were thinking. Let's make this bigger. So and there's always something... Go ahead. So, so you're basically teaching them the same lessons that you learned all the way back on the B-5 pilot. Absolutely. You know, from the days of Next Generation... They always knew that visual effects, you know, were one of the budget-conscious things in science fiction. So they were always writing their scripts around complex visual effects sequences. I mean, one of my favorite examples that I always like to use with people is Best of Both Worlds. We never saw Wolf 359. <laughs> we never got to see the battle. I mean, for God's sake, talk about the biggest cheat in science fiction history. We're all watching... We're all watching Best of Both Worlds Part 2 on the edge of our seat, waiting to see this huge battle. And what do we see? The aftermath. We the graveyard. The <laughs> the graveyard. And I remember my friends and I watching Best of Both Worlds Part 2, and we all stared at each other and just screamed, Ah! Where's the battle? You know, well, I mean, that's just nuts. I mean, like, if we had been doing CGI or Next Generation... And if we had gotten a script to just show the aftermath, we would have said, ah, uh, no, <laughs> we're going to see this battle. <laughs> In fact, I remember, I think it was um, Scorpion. Uh, it was a huge, there was an episode of Voyager, a two-part episode called Scorpion, a big boring episode. And that was the first show that really pushed the limits of CGI. That's the one where we really got together with them and said, let's really push this. And, we knew in the script that there had been a big battle with, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, with Borg ships. And they weren't planning to show the battle. And we're like, wait a minute, this is an important part of the story. You know, oh, no, I believe it was the Scorpion ship. Yeah, the Scorpion ships were fighting the, um, the uh, Borg cubes. And... You know, Seven of Nine was, like, getting, I think, messages from the battle, and it was, like, it was a really huge emotional moment. It was, it was like, their, you know, 9-11 for the board, kind of. Mm -hmm. And I think that there might have been a shot or two, in the, but, but they, they basically didn't have any scenes of the battle in the script because they felt like this is going to be too much to visualize. We've got, like, 
dozens of board cubes and the scorpion chips all fighting. And so they didn't have a shot of that. And I said, no, no, I really want to do a, sh- a massive like Return of the Jedi shot of this battle because it just seems important to see. And literally, you know, and we would do this sometimes, we would just give them shots for free because we felt like the story needed it. And I do specifically remember in Scorpion, there's one massive shot where you see like every board cube and every Scorpion ship blasting at each other and stuff blowing up. You know, we never got paid for that. We just, I specifically did that because I'm like, this story needs this shot. We want to make the show better. And that was always our inspiration, always wanting to make these shows better, however we could, using visual effects. Well, I'd like to turn to a, a, a sad aspect of making the shows better and uh, making the best visual effects possible uh, to right. the fact that if we look at the Babylon 5 DVDs or the digital downloads today, we're not exactly seeing Babylon 5 at its best. The film, the, the 16 by 9 film shots are pretty good, but... Yeah. Um, but what happened? What happened? Because um, uh, we 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 did a recent episode where a friend of ours from the UK was uh, complaining about the DVDs, and we've commented on them a, on it a couple of times. Why is it that the DVDs don't show off uh, Foundation's work quite as nicely as we'd all wish they could? All right, it's because look, when we worked on the pilot, and really. Just about all of our work on Babylon 5, which is the first three seasons, the show was designed for a 4 by 3 aspect ratio, which is a square screen. The show really wasn't designed for 16 by 9. And, I mean, the pilot, which was... Look, the pilot was shot on film. So the pilot was always able to withstand a 16 by 9 transfer far more easily than the visual effects, which was always rendered, you know, more or less on video. And because the pilot was shot 24 frames a second and video effects are sort of done, you know, at 30 frames a second, there was a major standards conversion issue when they did the, the um, 16 by nine Battle on five DVDs. So the visual effects shots, the pure CGI, and the composite shots, which are a combination of live action and CGI, those were sort of done at 30 frames a second. The live action was done at 24 frames a second. And for some reason, the DVDs were mastered in PAL, which is 25 frames a second. So you can imagine the hell of standards conversion that went between 24 to 30 frames to 25, back to 24 frames a second. And that's exactly why, between, between the standards conversion from 24 to 25 and 30 and all that, and cropping the visual effects from 4 by 3 to 16 by 9 that's why the foundation work doesn't look as good as it originally did. I mean, if you really want to see Babylon 5, not just the visual effects, but the way the live action, the way the whole show was designed, at least for those first three seasons, you've got to watch it either on VHS or the Laserdisc Transfers, the 4 by 3 that's the way the show was made. It just it just was. How expensive? Just spitballing here for a second. Um, not that I'm not that I have any realistic hope that anybody will ever pony up the money to do what uh, the next gen uh, folks did for their Blu-ray release. Yeah. But how big an undertaking would it be to try to marry all of that uh, old film footage 
to newly rendered uh, CGI. Because there's one fan out there, uh, and curse me for forgetting his name right now, who has done on his own just a, a, a maybe two minutes worth of really? maybe, maybe not even that of uh, his own renders of um, of uh, points of departure. It's not very much at all. It's clearly a labor of love, and clearly it takes a hell right. a hell of a lot of time. But how big an undertaking would it be to try to go back and recreate all that work for um, for modern high res viewing? Well, look to recreate everything in the first couple of seasons of B five would require doing it by hand. I mean, one thing that's interesting is you know be the idea of uh, saving assets. And when we, I mean, this is a, a, a very little known story. It's a little embarrassing, but I mean, look, what could we do? We were all inventing this industry as we went along. When we moved, look, we were backing up everything we did on Babylon 5 onto, it was called at the time, exabyte tape backup. And this large storage tape format. We backed up everything we did. And then I think I remember it was sometime in the third season, we wanted to restore something we had done on the pilot. And at that time, we had moved from Amigas to PCs. Now, the Amiga was always able to run a long file name structure, whereas the PC was always 8.3, right? Right. Well, the exabyte tape backup was PC-based, so the exabyte tapes only stored 8.3 file names. And when we tried to restore all these old Amiga file names that were longer than 8.3, it didn't give us the file names. So, in a sense, everything we had done was lost because we just didn't have any file names for anything. Ugh. I mean, the, da- the data was technically there, but if, if we tried to restore a scene with Lightwave, it just wouldn't find any of the files. So, we would really have... And plus, you know, look, I mean... It was all designed for 4 by 3 originally, and now we would want to make it 16 by 9 So if we were to, like, redo the first couple of seasons of B5, I mean, you'd have to do it all by hand because none of the scene files exist. And I know, you know like, Ron would absolutely want to remake all the models to look better. You know, we would just want to make everything look better. So, so you're basically, you would basically have to do modern television series visual effects for a series that has been in the can for 20 years. Pretty much. I mean, but then again, you know, I mean, look, I mean, it would be the, the quality of what you saw in Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. I could say that I would uh, I, I would love that. But at the same time, what we have on the DVDs is still preferable to no B5 at all. And, and we're... No, we're, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Mojo, you've worked on other uh, franchises. You've worked on the Star Trek franchise. You've worked on Battlestar Galactica, movies like right. Men in Black 3 and Battleship. Looking back on the work that you did on Babylon 5, what's the most meaningful thing to you about the time you spent on the show back then and what you learned and what you carried with you to your future career? Well, I mean, certainly, I think throughout all of Babylon 5, we all just believe that we were creating what we saw in our imaginations. If we saw it in our mind, we could do it on screen. There was no stumbling block between the CGI and what we could do. I mean, the, the software that was designed, um, Lightwave 3D, 
that we used to create Babylon 5 was created by filmmakers. The people that created Lightwave were Super 8 filmmakers. And just by coincidence, the people that made Babylon 5, Ron and myself, we grew up as Super 8 filmmakers. So we had a tool that used the same language and the same concepts that we were using to create visual effects in Babylon 5. It was just, I mean, it's funny, you know, way back when, when we would talk to Alan Hastings, the guy that designed the Lightwave software, I mean, you know, he had no idea that we were going to do Babylon 5. I mean, it was just all a big coincidence. But he told us one day, yeah, we just designed software to do cool special effects for, for, for uh, sci-fi movies. So the software that was designed to make Babylon 5 just by coincidence happened to be the perfect software to make Babylon 5. And all of us, you know, from the designers of the software to Ron and I, you know, making visual effects, we just wanted to do cool stuff, you know, and because we were inventing the CGI industry, we didn't have any preconceived notions of what was and wasn't possible. Like I said, we weren't even, there's no compositing, you know, the the only stumbling block was sort of a polygon limit, but like I said, we knew how to get around that by just putting stuff in the background cards. So, I mean, as, as cheesy as it might sound, the limit was always our imagination. And as I'm sure, Chip, you would understand, there's no limit to your imagination. And I mean, right. especially when you're a sci-fi fan, I mean, you just dream this stuff up and you find a way to do it. It's that simple. I've been talking to Adam Mojo Leibowitz, who, in the words of uh, a character named Londo Malari, was there at the dawn of the CGI age of filmmaking. Mojo, thank you so much for spending some time with us and giving the listeners to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 a first-hand uh, look at what it was like to be creating an industry and to create the visual effects for Babylon 5 today. All right. Th thank you very much. Take care. Every two weeks, join me, Shannon, and Erica as we review another episode of the classic, groundbreaking space opera, Babylon 5. More episodes are at b5audioguide.com. Follow us on Twitter or Tumblr, also at b5audioguide. Thanks for listening. Be seeing you. Be seeing you.